oriented towards glorifying God, not satisfying our wants. It should be a private thing, never a public show of our righteousness. We should be persistent and resolute. That's a word we used last week. Do we remember it? Pressing on toward the goal, regardless of the distractions. Resolute. And while God has promised to answer prayer, he's not a vending machine. You don't stick prayers in and expect goodies out. This week we're going to talk about repentance. Repentance is turning toward God and away from sin. It's a characteristic of the born-again Christian who rejects his former ways. It is a necessary behavior for Christians at all levels of maturity as we continue toward our ultimate sanctification. Do we remember sanctification? Okay, the, the, the act or condition of being free from sin. Penitence, which we talked about last week, involves seeing our sin as God sees it. Repentance is doing something about it. Very similar words, similar concept. And of course, we'll be having readings by Alexander Scorby, starting with this one. And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, All these have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing. Sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they that heard it said, Who then can be saved? And he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house, or parents, or brethren, or wife, or children, for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time, and in the world to come, life everlasting. So Jesus has spent the last maybe three months in Perea. Remember, that's across the river. He now comes toward Jerusalem. He's approached during his journey by a young ruler. And this Jew honestly wants to know what it is he can do to inherit heaven. Remember, that's the focus of the Jewish religion. It's works-based. What can I do? But Jesus challenges him on his greeting because he calls Jesus good master. Jesus says, there's none good save God. And this is a subtle get-off-the-fence. Either admit I'm God, or quit calling me good. Because remember, a lot of people who saw Jesus accepted him as a prophet. They did not accept him as God incarnate on earth. And this is, you can miss it if you're not paying attention. This is a jab. He's saying, admit it. 
I'm either God or I'm not. You can't be on the fence about this. But Jesus tells him, you know the commandments. You've been taught what Judaism says about getting to heaven. And the ruler responds very proudly, I have kept them all since my youth. Usually at this point, Jesus skewers the guy. But he doesn't. He said, instead, you're missing one thing. You need to give away your wealth and follow me, follow Jesus. Giving away his wealth will not save him. That would be work salvation, right? Giving away his wealth is a something he does. It's a work. It won't save him. But what's keeping him from heaven, what keeps all of us from heaven, is relying on ourselves. The rich man always had the cushion, the padding of his riches. <clears throat> no disaster could touch him too much because he's rich. He can buy his way out of trouble. Until he lets go of those riches, he can't hold on to Christ because he's always going to be going and relying on those riches to Except Christ, you have to come to the point where you're at the end of self. You realize, I cannot do it. I need God. And that problem that the rich man had in those days is the same problem so many people have today. They cannot let go of who they are, what they can do. <clears throat> but he had to let go of everything and put his faith in God alone for his salvation. The man was sorrowful because he depended too much on his wealth. He could not imagine a life without his wealth. So he couldn't accept Christ as his savior because he's too busy hanging on to his wealth. <clears throat> Jesus then comments how difficult it is for a rich man to reach heaven. And he uses the example of a camel going through the eye of a needle. <clears throat> now, a lot of people you'll hear have said, well, this is clearly an error in the transcription. It should have said a camel hair through the eye of a needle because camel hair is is famously coarse, and you're never going to get it through the eye of a needle. But Jesus was fond of, of ridiculous examples. So I don't think this is a transcriptional error. I think Jesus said exactly what the Bible says he said. It's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. The biggest thing that's living that you could commonly think of in that time, that was the biggest animal. There were no elephants known in that land. Camel. Through the smallest thing made by man, the hole in the eye of a needle. The biggest through the smallest. I think it's a perfect example. <clears throat> it's not their money that keeps them out. It's their independent security that prevents them from turning to Christ. Now, I'm getting a couple of people who are looking at me like, mm -hmm. does that make sense? Sandy, you, you with me? Okay, everybody. Because <clears throat> it's an important idea, guys. Excuse me. Now, the crowd then asks, but wait. If they can't be saved, how can anyone be saved? And again, this is something you're going to miss unless you understand the cultural baggage that these Jews were bringing with them. In the Jewish mindset, rich people, by definition, were righteous. Now, to us, that doesn't make sense. We know the rich are corrupt. 
But you've got to put yourself in a Jewish mindset. God blesses the righteous. God curses the unrighteous. In the same way that if you pass a blind man on the street, he or his parents did some great sin, that he was born blind, the flip side is also true. A rich man must be a very righteous man because God has blessed him with riches. You see how it works? So when the crowd hears that rich men cannot be saved, well, they're the most righteous. If they can't be saved, how can anyone be saved? Is the very realistic question they had. Now, we recognize from what we read in the Bible that they were approaching it with the wrong baggage. God does not automatically give the most righteous the most money. And God does not automatically give the most sinful, the most terrible handicaps. <clears throat> That's not the way God works. But that was their perception. So they asked then, well, how can anyone be saved? Jesus says, while it's hard with, God, with man, it's easy with God. With God, nothing is impossible. Now at this point, Peter chimes in, or, or one of these, I think it was Peter. Well, God, you know, we've left everything for you. And again, this is a point where Jesus would usually skewer them for being prideful. That's, you know, as I read the Bible, based on everything I've read, when, when the disciples get up and eat, Jesus usually makes it very clear. Yeah, you got the wrong approach. But he lets it pass this time and uses it as a teaching moment. Yes, make no mistake, everyone who leaves things in this life for my sake will get so much more as a reward in heaven. Now, this rich ruler's response is in direct contrast to what we're going to see in Zacchaeus in the main story of this lesson. Brother? Chapter 19. And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for so much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. The wrong man does right. Last week we discussed a little bit, cognitive dissonance, and I want to talk about this again. Very fancy term. Cognitive dissonance occurs when you try to hold two, two thoughts that are contradictory in your head at the same time. A Pharisee is a righteous man. The Pharisees are all sinners. Those contradict each other, right? The Pharisee is the most respected person in society, and yet when we see the Pharisee in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican both praying, the one that does it right is the publican. The one that does it wrong is the Pharisee. 
This is an example of cognitive dissonance. You're presented with a fact that contradicts everything you know. Okay? It, the, the, the best example I can think of is if you've ever seen some of these um, street magic shows where someone like Chris Angel pretends to levitate in front of people's eyes, it freaks them out because they know people don't fly. We all know this, people don't fly. But if you see someone apparently hovering six inches off the ground, and if you believe they're hovering, it's going to set up a problem in your brain. You simultaneously know two things that are different. People don't fly, and yet he's flying. And so you see, they show the reactions of some of these people who freak out. Well, of course, it's television. They're picking the most dramatic examples. He does the trick 200 times, and they pick the two that totally freak out. Because it looks better. It's better TV. But at the same time, the same technique in a less dramatic sense is a wonderful teaching moment. When you tell someone two things that are contradictory, it forces you, them to pay attention to you. They have to resolve it. Actually, they have two options. They can ignore you and walk away. Or they can pay attention and try to resolve the conflict in their brain. And that's a great deal of what Jesus did while he was here on the earth. He was always getting up in people's faces, intellectually challenging, and challenging them because he wanted them to think. Because as long as the Jews were comfortable in their cultural baggage, they were going to hell. Jesus' entire purpose in coming to the earth, aside from dying for our sins, thank you very much, was to educate people about why he was there, to make him think, excuse me, to make them think about the fact that they weren't doing it right. So Jesus tells a story where the society hero does the wrong thing while society's villain does the right. And that's in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. That's in the Pharisee of the Good Samaritan where the chief priest and the Levite both walk past the injured man, but the despised Samaritan is the one that responds. These are all presenting people in roles you don't expect. It's intentional miscasting to get people's attention. And what I talked about last week is imagine Jim Carrey playing Moses in the Ten Commandments. It's just not the same. Now, Zacchaeus versus the rich young ruler is a real-world example of that same analogy. One, the young ruler considers change, but then goes away sorrowing, while another repents and completely changes his life. So again, the setting, Jesus is passing through Jericho on his way to Palestine. He's in Perea. And if you can't see the red circle, you're sitting too far back. There's an arrow going to the southwest toward Jericho. Now, Jericho sits in a valley, which is the center of balsam production, B-A-L-S-A-M. It's a crystallized tree sap that is collected off these trees and then processed into the most expensive perfume known to man at that time. The uh, alabaster box full of perfume that was broken over Jesus most likely came from balsam. Now, Zacchaeus 
is the chief publican, the chief tax collector over this region where there's lots of money flowing in on trade. So there's lots of money for the tax collectors to get rich on. And he's not just a tax collector. He's the chief tax collector that has other tax collectors reporting to him. So he's in a position to properly skim off a little bit of the riches. Very rich and very despised. Zacchaeus, while a Jew, has a Greek name. Not Jewish. So he's the bad guy in every sense. He's been cut off from his community. He's probably unwelcome at the synagogue. He's probably not talked to in the street. He's rich, but he's despised. His name means innocent or pure. It's a wonderful irony there. And he's of small stature. Society does not have a lot of respect for the middle man, little man. And you've got to know, while he's despised, people are laughing him and mocking him as much as they can get away with. He wants to see Jesus, but the crowd is too tall for him. He does not have a stepladder. So he runs ahead of the crowd and climbs up into a tree. This is kind of a public act of humiliation. This is a respectable middle-aged man, probably, Climbing up a tree. He looks stupid. I guarantee you everyone is laughing behind their hands at him. Look at what this guy is doing. Can you ever imagine stupid little Zacchaeus being that dumb? Oh man, I got to tell, tell my whole family about this. And then Jesus walks along and flips the script on everybody. He doesn't laugh at the little man in the tree. He looks straight at him, calls him out by name. Not only does he speak to the undespised man, this despised man, he wants to have lunch with him at this man's house. The crowd is aghast, shocked, horrified. All their fun has been taken away. This prophet is going to eat with this the worst sinner in the area, the man we most despise, the man we won't even call by whatever his Jewish name was. We're just going to give him a Greek name. Jesus knows that he's in the tree and he knows his name. Casual omniscience. Zacharias received him joyfully, but the crowd was pretty unhappy. And I tell you, where was Zacchaeus saved? Right there in the tree. He had to know Jesus' message. That's why he was coming to see him. He had to, at some level, believe Jesus' message. Because it's important enough to him to be able to see Jesus. He's going to do something really undignified. The only thing that mattered to Zacchaeus right then was seeing Jesus. When Jesus then accepted him, he realizes the invitation's open. I guarantee you he was saved right then. Zacchaeus then wants to show his salvation through active repentance. Salvation should cause us to change our lives. And Zacchaeus takes it to a bit of an extreme. See, the Old Testament law, which everyone knew, if you look at uh, in Leviticus, 
uh, 6, 5, and I think 6. Or all that about which he hath sworn falsely, he shall even restore it in the principle, and shall add the fifth part more thereunto, thereto, and give it unto him to whom it appertaineth in the day of his trespass offering. If you had sinned against a fellow by lying and taking advantage of him, the law said you had to give him that money back and another 20% on top. 120% restitution. But if it involved livestock, the cost was higher. Exodus 22.1. If a man shall steal an ox or a sheep and kill it or sell it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So you got one standard of 120% and another standard of 400%. The difference is that was the ultimate wealth. God, knowing his people were sinful, because the law was given for, to a sinful people. The Jews, like us, were a sinful people. Knowing that there'd be someone who'd say, well, if I get caught, it's only 120%. He said, on this matter of livestock, the, one of the easiest things and most important things you can take from a man, I'm going to make it 400 or 500%. Well, Zacchaeus, knowing the Old Testament law, even though he wasn't treated as a Jew, he knew the law. All he was required to do under the law to every man he had defrauded was to give 120% back. But he says to Jesus, I'm going to give 400% back. I'm going to take the higher penalty as proof of my repentance. Jesus validates that this was true repentance, saying salvation is come to this house today. And he also said, he also is a son of Abraham. Now, this is important in two aspects. One, genetically, he was a son of Abraham, although he'd always been excluded from the community. Jesus says, this, is a, this man should be included in the community. He's also a son of Abraham in that he is a spiritual son of Abraham. Abraham trusted in God. Zacchaeus is now trusting in God. In the same way, we are children of Abraham by having accepted Christ as our Savior. Zacchaeus is part of that community as well. Jesus closes out this encounter saying that he was come to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus did not just wait passively. He didn't come down to the earth and sit down. Hi, I'm Jesus. Okay, I'm here. If you want to repent, I'll be in Jerusalem for the next three years. Waiting. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus did not passively wait for these Jews to come flocking to him, although they should have. If they understood, they would have run each other over getting to him. No, Jesus actively sought and say, to save those which were lost. He went on tours, missionary journeys, telling people who he was, why he was there, why they were doing wrong, how to get right with God. Actively seeking out the lost. Remember also... We saw in the other accounts that Zacchaeus made a great feast for all his friends so that they could find Jesus as well. Another aspect of his repentance. Now, and I didn't realize this till I was preparing for this lesson. 
It's in direct contrast to the young ruler. If you read in context, the young ruler comes right before the story of Zacchaeus. You have the sorrowful young ruler who could not leave his wealth, and Zacchaeus who joyfully gave away half of everything he had, and then overpaid everybody he'd ever wronged. Their approach was different as well. The ruler came seeking a reward and thought he deserved to get it. The publican just wanted to see Jesus, and he was willing to look stupid to do it. Two very different approaches. Jesus was lovingly compassionate to both men. He gave them both the message they needed. But he didn't force himself on them. They had to accept. The choice was theirs. And there's a beautiful picture of the gospel there. Because while God brings us to that point, the choice is always ours. We do not live under a Calvinistic God. We decide whether we are saved or whether we are lost. The encounter with the rich young ruler ended with Jesus commenting on how difficult it was for the rich to be saved. Yet a few verses later, a very wealthy man and a very corrupt man repented and trusted in Jesus. It's impossible with God. Excuse me. Apologize. I did not say If you're taping it, just rewind. What's impossible with man is easy with God. So what does repentance look like? That's the focus of this class. What does repentance look like? If we look in Psalms, chapter 51, 3 through 6, this is David speaking to God after he's been informed of his great sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned. And done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. As David did, we must recognize both our sin and our desire to sin. Seeing the severity of our offense against God. This is conviction. This is when we admit we did wrong. That's an essential part of repentance. Then in Joel chapter 2, 12 and 13, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your heart and not your garments. And turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. We need to be broken over our sins. Not just going through the external motions, but truly returning to the Lord with all our hearts. In Proverbs 28, 13, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. We like to skip that last part. Whoever confesses his sin shall have mercy. And that's true. But to really benefit from the ways of God, you have to confess and forsake them. To leave the sins over there. To not go back 
like a dog to its own vomit. God promised us forgiveness if we will only confess our sins to him. And finally, out of Ezekiel chapter 18, 30 through 32. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, saith the Lord God. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. That's God begging Israel to please turn away. He is a just God. And if you insist, he will throw you into hell. But he takes no pleasure in it. He wants everyone to be saved. Every. If God has his way, every single human since the beginning of mankind would be saved. That's not what we choose. We collectively, hopefully everyone here has made a different decision. I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth. When someone tells you our God is a bloodthirsty God, Ezekiel 18.32. He has no pleasure. Let's read a passage in Luke, brother, uh, sister. Thank you. Then he took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted on. And they shall scourge him and put him to death, and the third day he shall rise again. And they understood none of these things, and this saying was hid from them, neither knew they the things which were spoken. Jesus knew where he was going and what was in store. He was walking to his crucifixion. This journey from Perea through Jericho down to Jerusalem was his last of his own will. The last journey from town to town. The rest of his life will be spent in Jerusalem. The rest of this portion of his life, I should say, rather. And he reveals that, this now in complete detail to his disciples. But they are already listening. Now, already listening is a term I learned in management training back in the 90s. And I think it's a great term. And it's a great piece of reality. When you are listening to someone telling you their opinion about something... You have two options. You can very carefully listen to what they are telling you, or you can hear just enough to figure out where they're going and decide what you're going to say next. By show of hands, who does the second thing? I can't get my hand high enough. Okay? You don't listen to people because you already know what they're going to say. Is this a recipe for good communication? Trust me, it ruins a lot of marriages, okay? When you know your wife is making the same, or your husband, is making the same complaint you've heard every time before, you're not listening. You're just building up a proper head of steam for your response and your rebuttal. And this goes on everywhere. In marriages, parents to children, children to parents, teachers to students. 
even discussions with our closest friends, we don't actually listen. We're just waiting for them to pause so we can jump in and say our opinion, our idea, our contribution to the conversation. And this is absolutely what's going on with the disciples. They've got so much cultural baggage. They know who Jesus is. They know where he's going. And he tells them, I'm going to die. We might as well have earrings labeled in and out. No penetration. Now, don't throw too many rocks. Okay? Understand just how much cultural baggage they had. And then, literally, the Bible tells us it was hidden from them. God did not permit them to understand. And then right after the passage of Zacchaeus, literally in the next verse, we have this next passage. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, therefore, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and to return. And he called his ten servants, and delivered them ten pounds, and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him, and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said likewise to him, Be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou laidst not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury? And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. For I say unto you, that unto every one which hath shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. They thought the kingdom should immediately appear. Regardless about, of his words about his death, Jesus' followers only knew one thing. There was going to be a showdown with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were out to kill Jesus. The Pharisees' power is centered in Jerusalem. Jesus is walking into Jerusalem. Therefore, there will be a showdown with the Pharisees. And since Jesus is God, it's a foregone conclusion which way this is going to go. Pharisees are going to be made to look stupid. Jesus is going to ascend the throne. We're going to kick the Romans out. Everything will be sweetness and light. They lived happily ever after. Yay! That's honestly the expectation. They assumed the Messiah from God had to win it. Now, he's told them plainly about his death, and 
So now he's going to try an analogy, a parable. And we've talked about parables and the rules for interpreting them. The characters here are the nobleman, ten servants, and the citizens. Well, very clearly Christ, his professed servants, and those who reject Jesus as the Christ. The nobleman had to go to a far-off country. Now, this would not be a surprise to Jews because everyone who ruled in Judea was appointed by Rome. And they generally had to go to Rome to get their appointment and then come back. So that made sense in the cultural baggage of the Jews. Jesus was headed to heaven, going to a very far-off land. And when he came back, he would rule. His servants are instructed to conduct business, to invest the gospel message they have been entrusted with. Note that in this example, all ten servants are entrusted with the very same thing. Each has a pound. Each has the gospel message. On his return, his servants are judged for their faithfulness in obeying his commands while he was gone. And the unfaithful servant is rebuked for failing to be faithful, and his pound is taken from him. He loses the chance to serve further, but he is not executed. And that's important, because it's loss of reward, not loss of salvation. The citizens who reject the nobleman are executed before him. You guys have heard of the great white throne judgment? It is coming someday. And I am very glad that I'm told I'm not having to stand there before it. So, this lesson, we talked about repentance. We talked about examples of repentance. And we set up the next set of ten lessons, which is Jesus' last week on earth. Question, do you tend to grumble about interacting with those who you consider to be worse sinners than you? when they come into church all decked out in clothes and tattoos and whatever? Do you welcome them? How might you work to be more compassionate to others? It's a challenge. Nobody has to say anything, but it's something to consider. What does it look like to be a faithful servant awaiting your king? Anyone want to try that one? It's a little more comfortable. You're going to make me get out the crickets, aren't you? Anybody? Richard, you, if you make it quick, you can beat the crickets. It's a slow pro program. Come on, brother. Nobody wants to talk. Nothing but crickets out there. What we did learn of the Zacchaeus situation was interesting comparing to the, to the rich man. Very, very good. Good lesson. Bible, always good lessons out of the Bible. And I uh, appreciate the, the presentation this morning. Hope everyone else did. Looking forward. Oh, my goodness. What's the number? I'm sorry, Sandy, I forgot to get the number. She must have gone in the back.
they were here. They were here already. Yeah. Well, I don't know what the number is, but I should have got the number from Sandy before I came over here, and I failed to do so. So, but we could look like a pretty good number. I know that uh, brother brother Lester and uh, Margaret are not here. I'm not sure they they talked about being uh, not feeling well Wednesday, but they were here, so I expect to be here. Do you know anything about them, Stan? They are sick. Oh. They were they were okay Wednesday, weren't they? I mean, they were. So keep them in prayer. Didn't realize it. They knew they're okay. Keep them in prayer. I was going to say, keep keep Miss Sue in prayer. Uh, I was talking Saturday to a guy who teaches at San Jack. Miss Sue is continuing to teach her remote classes. Isn't that something? That lady. That's, that's Miss Sue. That is her. Because I asked Mike, I said, who's taking her place? He says, she's still teaching the remote classes. I said, okay. Her, her, is it her ankle, ankles hurt, isn't it? Right? Yeah. 